COVID-19. Weekly Digest. This is News Talk. Welcome to the Weekly Digest here on News Talk. I'm Shane Beattie and over the next hour we'll look back at the week that was in the world of COVID-19. It's Friday night and I'm here in the Department of Health on Baggett Street in Dublin. We've just had our daily press briefing with Chief Medical Officer Dr Tony Hoolan and the latest figures we have tonight are that a further 27 people with COVID-19 have died. The death toll now stands at 1,429 while there are 22,500 confirmed cases. This week, of course, one of the main issues was around the leaving cert. We had a week of will they, won't they, over whether 60,000 students would have to sit their exams in July. But finally, we have clarity on the issue. Education Minister Joan McHugh gave a briefing earlier and said the exams had been cancelled. Students will have the option to sit them at a later date or get a predicted grade. Minister McHugh outlines the procedures. Teachers will be asked to provide a professional judgment of each student's attainment which will be subjected subjected to a rigorous in-school process to ensure fairness. The school principal will approve the estimated scores being provided and the rankings of each student in each subject in the school. Students can appeal the grades. The option to sit in an examination will be available to any candidate unhappy with the outcome of their appeal. This could be in the autumn or whenever it is deemed safe for them to be held. Dr Tony Holohan says he never recommended cancelling the exams, he just gave the public health advice. I think it's, it's provided clarity for students. Uh, it is um, that department having assessed the ability to comply with, with the guidance and the challenge that that would represent for them in, 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 uh, in, in conducting uh, a leaving cert examination in the time frame with the kind of uncertainties that we have around the virus. So they have done, as we are now recommending other sectors do, internalise if you like. Uh, the advice that we have uh, uh, in terms of what they need to put in place to enable them to run, in this case, exams or to provide whatever service any given sector or department is responsible for and to assess whether they're in a position to do that in line with their public health advice or not. And that's the basis of that decision. It, it follows the public health advice. We've learned this week that since the criteria for testing has been widened, GPs have seen a doubling of people they're sending for COVID-19 testing in the past seven days. Dr Tony Holohan says that's seen a big rise in the numbers being sent to get their swabs taken at test centres. Between the changes to the clinical case definition that were introduced last week and then the widening that you're referring to there of the prioritisation criteria has now led in effect to about a doubling of the number of referrals that come through general practice, which was well within, if you like, the predictions we were making about what the impact of that might be, uh, and well within the capacity from a sampling and, and, and testing. Tragically, this week we know more about who is dying from COVID-19 here. Out of nearly 1,400 deaths, two-thirds have been aged 80 years or older. The 75 to 79 age band, 974 cases, 180 deaths. 75 to 79 age band, 974 cases, 180 deaths. The 80 to 84 age band, 1,241 cases, 304 deaths. And then in those aged over 85, 2,329 cases in total, 652 deaths. 
We've also learned this week of big problems emerging with COVID-19 cases in direct provision centres and meat plants in asylum seeker accommodation. There have been 12 clusters and 149 cases and it's led to 12 people being hospitalised. Deputy Chief Medical Officer Dr Ronan Glynn says there's also clusters emerging in meat factories. 10 clusters across 10 different facilities um, with a total of 566 cases. So um, the HSE convened a national outbreak. So there's an outbreak control team in place for each of those uh, clusters, but the HSC convened a national outbreak control team yesterday and, and um, they'll be taking a range of actions to mitigate and, and prevent onward spread of that, including the production of guidance for um, meat processing facilities around the country. Tonight's briefing showed us fresh data showing how traffic numbers, public transport figures and even ATM withdrawals are all down in recent weeks since the restrictions were brought in. Tony Houlihan says it all shows people are still staying home to save lives. No, one of them on its own should be overinterpreted. When you put the whole lot together it says to us that the population is complying very well and importantly from our point of view is maintaining that compliance and when we add that to our assessment of the progress we've made in terms of the disease even over the course of the last uh, week uh, since, since we made our last weekly assessment we think this gives us good reason for encouragement about the path we're on. Now, as you heard at the start, the issue of the Leaving Cert has dominated the discussions around COVID-19 in recent days. On Wednesday's Lunchtime Live, Leaving Cert student Laura shared her thoughts with Kira. I personally would be completely against the predicted grading scheme. I don't think any of it is fair, really. I think despite teachers having their best interests in favour, bias comes into it, different opinions on correcting comes into it. And I think... Through the years, we have seen that people tend to peak in their leaving search. Yep. And we shouldn't be denied that opportunity to peak. Like, I know it's a very difficult time and there's many aspects that come into it. But at the end of the day, a lot of us are prepared to go into the leaving search and prove ourselves there and do our best there, which our predicted grading may not represent. Can I ask you, Laura, and, 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 and look, you're absolutely entitled to your opinion and God knows you're the one who will have to sit this exam should it go ahead. So, you're, you know, it's, it's very interesting to hear what you have to say. I think you're right. I think the mocks very, I don't know what I got in my own mocks, but I, I'm sure it was rubbish. Uh, I, I think the mocks very rarely represent what somebody will do in the Leaving Cert. But we know that. So would it not be reasonable to say, well, if everybody goes up two grades on each subject in the mocks into the Leaving, just take their mocks and, and soup them up a bit? I know there is that aspect of it, but I know many people who have gone up 200, 300 points. And of course, that doesn't apply to the majority of people. But I think to be denied proving yourself to go up that amount isn't fair. Okay. And I know there's no fair option at yeah. this time. But even throughout the years, my teachers have been told me, do the best in all your exams, like try the best you can. But at the end of the day, 100% in your mocks isn't worth 1% in your yeah. leaving search. So now to me, it seems ridiculous to be told, oh no, hold on, that is your leaving search. No, I hear you. but, but And I understand. And, and the fairness thing is clearly hugely important, right? Hugely important. Um, but here's the thing. 
is it fair that we, because we, we know we have a digital divide, we know that 51% of students doing their leaving search do not have adequate access to Wi-Fi, for example, or broadband. So, so they're already at massive disadvantages if there is online, you know, teaching and remote learning and all of that. And we also know that some schools have run a very efficient and effective remote learning programme for their leaving search students. And some schools seem to have very little remote learning at all. So there are some students who've had practically no teaching at all since the 12th of March. On that basis, Laura, there's no fairness going into the, 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 you know, the sit down exam either because it's not a level playing field the way it should have been. It's all cockeyed and up in the air anyway. Either way, it's, it's, it's not a good setup. No, I agree with you completely. There is no fair option. But I think in general, the Leaving Cert isn't that fair. There's always a divide between people who have the facilities and people who don't. Yeah. But I think that the idea of predicted grading will be less fair. It means it is all dependent on your teachers. And I know completely that our teachers have the best in mind for it, but naturally they're going to have their favourites. Naturally they're going to have different opinions on what is right and what is wrong and what you're capable of. Yeah. No. What would you say, lastly, before I let you go, what would you say about um, the idea, right, of having uh, predicted grades, but if you were unhappy with the, the grades you were given, that you would then um, be allowed, and there would be much fewer of you, obviously, sit the leaving if you chose to? Yeah, no, I think that is a good idea. I personally, my preferred opinion would be to sit leaving cert but I think in fairness that is quite a fair idea and I just like to add I know a lot of people right now are talking about how stressful the situation is and I think amid the stress of a pandemic we've forgotten the normal stress so de- yeah. associated with the leaving cert I agree. like I was equally stressed before this everyone I know mental health was slipping a bit before this because that's just the nature of the leaving cert yes and I agree uh, I, I totally agree uh, it, 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 we 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 are we are in in a, a a very difficult time, and I would also suggest that in some way this highlights the hypocrisy that every year we have a lot of hand wringing about the stress of the poor leaving cert students, and then this year when not only that they have the normal leaving cert stress, but they have all this uncertainty, and they have twelve months of sixth year, and they have an almost unsittable exam under social distancing conditions, and all of that, and maybe sick families and lockdown and everything on top of the leaving cert results, nobody seems to give a monkeys. But anyway, look, um, the best of luck, Laura, with whatever happens, okay? Um, thank you for speaking to me and I hope I hope you do well, whatever happens, and I hope you're happy with whatever happens as well. So thank you for that indeed. I'm joined now, though, by somebody who is very expert in all these matters. Brian Mooney, editor of Education Matters and columnist uh, on education, joins me uh now, Brian, delighted to talk to you. Um, you and I have spoken about this issue before and you are obviously an advocate for the exam going ahead. Do you still feel the same? Okay. There are issues, obviously, in relation to it going ahead. And those issues are public health issues and the logistic issues, etc. Um, the problem with it not going ahead is we have to have a viable alternative. And as I pointed out in other media in the last few days, when you look at those viable alternatives, they have as many problems, if not more problems, with running the exam. So I think where we're at today is a feeling that maybe, you know, public health concerns and all sorts of other issues might make it almost impossible to go ahead. But when you actually look at the alternatives, I mean, we talked about predictive grades. 
the problem, as I pointed out, for predictive grades is one, you know, you're talking about relationship with individual teachers, you're talking about perspectives of individual teachers, and you're also talking about several thousand students who are outside the school system. They're in grind schools, they're homeschoolers, they're doing a subject outside school themselves. There's a whole variety of other factors which wouldn't fit easily into just ask the teacher, because in many cases there isn't a teacher as such. The I presume grind schools and things, do they not do assignments though? And they do not get graded assignments oh, for absolutely. essays? No, 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 I so there's some, that. So, so they have no, submitted the work for assessment. And they do not work for the state and they're not employed as state employees. So if you're going outside that system and you're then going to institutions that are private institutions saying, you're, you're, you know, there's a, maybe a different criteria or a different set of assessments. And then, as I say, you've got homeschoolers, people who are ill, who haven't, you know, or have chosen to homeschool or the children who are doing subjects outside school themselves, yeah. who are studying it because it wasn't offered by the school itself. Uh, they, are they are tiny numbers, though. The number of homeschoolers that are leaving search compared to... Oh, no, no, to, I understand uh, that. You know, so, 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 even if you have 10, you know, you have the whole issue of fairness. You know what I'm saying? You, so you do, Brian, but you have certainly more than 10 students. You have 51% of students don't have adequate broadband. So so that's not 10 out of 61,000. No, no, I understand. So, no, no, so, so, look, so surely on balance, the fairness of the, of, of the SAT It's exact. all about getting the most yes, fair and no I agree system is going to be perfect. Um, I, I see Thomas Byrne, Fianna Fáil spokesperson in education, came out yesterday and said that the CMO hasn't even signed off on this idea that you'll go back to school for two weeks and children will have lessons again for that period yeah. of time. So, so what, can very, I ask your honest? Can Sarah. I ask your honest opinion? Was the plan ever thought through? Do you think properly in the first place? Because it looks to me like it was a bit of a wing and a prayer thing. I, I would suggest to you that the 29th of July is the last possible date you could possibly start an exam system to run it into the month of August, which would allow you to actually operate a normal school system in September. So I would suggest... But that's where that date came from, you think? Of course it is. That is the date beyond which it is then impossible. This year's cohort of 60,000 students are out of the system. There is no place for them in the, in the school yeah. system as such, they cannot be accommodated once you go beyond the start date of the 29th of July. That was Brian Mooney speaking to Kira Kelly on Wednesday. Coming up next, Professor Luke O'Neill talks through the latest COVID-19 news from the world of science. Welcome back to the Weekly Digest. I'm Shane Beatty. On Wednesday's Pat Kenny show, Professor Luke O'Neill joined Pat to talk through the full spectrum of known symptoms of COVID-19. I mean, as we all know, but we all well know by now, don't we, the, the standard symptoms, I guess, and fever is a key one, actually. And, and what's good about this, Pat, is we're understanding more and more about this disease, I guess, and then that's going to give help with, with therapies. But fever is a common feature, as we all know, of things like a flu, for instance. And we know exactly what's happening with fever, Pat. You make a thing called a cytokine, there's a word people seem to now know more and more. So the cytokines are made by your immune system. There was this one called IL-1, which I work on actually myself. That goes to the brain. It causes the brain to make things called prostaglandins. These words are always a bit challenging. And the prostaglandins raise your body temperature. And of course, this is useful because drugs like paracetamol block the prostaglandins. And so does ibuprofen. That's the other one that's used to bring your temperature down. And of course, if fever is a bit of a nuisance, uh, the main function, Pat, by the way, is your immune system works a bit faster if, it's, if your body's a bit warmer. So this is a useful response. Of course, it can get serious and hence you need to use more stronger. Okay, but are, are you slowing lower. down recovery then, Luke? If you if you take these things to make yourself feel more comfortable and break your fever, are you slowing down recovery because your immune system is working at half cock? 
That's a great question, Pat. That, that's what uh, dominates my lab most of the time, to be honest, because these things are beneficial as well. So what you're trying to do is limit them slightly, you see, not fully turn them off. And sometimes they go a bit high. It's like, like the setting is, is wrong, I suppose, and you set it back to normal. And you will see a bit of fever. A bit of fever is good, basically. Too much is bad. And the drugs that bring it down then can be useful. And, of course, fever can get serious in children, for instance. It can cause convulsions. So it's useful to have a way to limit fever. But, but in the main, fever is a pretty normal response and nothing to worry about. Hmm. Now, uh, there are other uh, things we heard in the opening there. Uh, you feel like you've been through a car crash, so you're getting muscle pain and you're getting headache. Uh, you feel dog tired, so you can't crawl out of bed. What causes those? Yeah, again, as we had before, but there this part of this thing called sickness behavior. They're designed to make you crawl in the duvet, basically, and get yourself away from the herd, the classic, you know, isolation, as we know and know it, of course. So all those symptoms make you feel a bit rotten. And again, they're caused by these cytokines. We know several of these cytokines will cause those chills. Muscle aches are a big part of this. And I remember, Pat, as we learn more and more, and as we'll discuss, uh, doctors are learning more and more about this disease and how it differs, say, to regular flu. And these are more severe in COVID-19. And as, as of course, as we know, it, it can be much more severe than flu, higher hospitalization rates, longer time in hospital. So some of those symptoms do become quite troubling. But but again, they're part and parcel of a regular infection, I guess. And as I say, you know, you expect this is the evolution in action in a way to make you make you isolate away from the herd. The cough is interesting, Pat's a cough is a key feature and cough is caused by the virus uh, causing the release of things called neuropeptides that are made and they activate nerves in your airways and then promote the cough now that one is to the virus's advantage remember there's no role for cough we think in in host defense necessarily you cough it out to get rid of it slightly but of course you're coughing to spread the virus and again lots of studies on cough and other diseases because certain diseases cough is very severe so understanding that pathway can also be helpful in terms of limiting cough in different situations Okay, so so here we have the battle between the virus, uh, which wants you to cough, and uh, for humankind, you'd be better off not coughing. But uh, the virus wins in the in this particular battle. What about the shortness of breath, which is what is most distressing for people? Yeah, now we're getting to the more serious ones. Things like fever and chills and muscle aches are a nuisance more than anything else, as we as we as we know. That obviously, when the lungs get damaged, then you can't breathe properly, and that's a very ser- we're getting more serious now. And of course, people with shortness of breath then combined with one or two other symptoms is a real indicator here. And that's when people should talk to their GP. And again, that's simply, a, well, at the moment, as, as we discussed, the view has changed slightly, but at the moment it's inflammation of your lungs. Your lungs become very inflamed. You get lots of white blood cells, like a type called macrophages, rush into your lungs, and they're, they're, they're challenging lung function, I guess. A shortness of breath, of course, is a key feature of this disease as well. And the other impact to the airways is the sense of smell. Now, that's got people's attention. Now, again, you lose your smell when you have a cold or when you have the flu anyway. And we think that's because of mucus being made and that clogs up all the sort of uh, smell sensors in your nose and they don't work properly because of all this mucus that's there. With this one, it might be slightly different. Uh, There's some evidence the virus might infect the nerve in your nose. And the nerve sends a signal to the brain, of course, that you're smelling something. It's called the olfactory nerve. And there's some evidence, maybe at least they're, they're postulating that it might be infecting those nerve cells. Secondly, the little sensors in your nose, some of them die off. So the virus, you know, is able to kill some of those. And then you lose your sense of smell. Now, the good news is that one comes back. Uh, most people report this symptom. And then once the virus is gone, actually, it starts to recover and you rebuild those things that have, that have been uh, damaged, I guess. And then the sense of smell then returns. Now, taste is interesting because, you know, this uh, thing that they've done with people where they peg their nose and then they give them a bite of an onion and a bite of an apple 
and people can't tell the difference if they're blindfolded. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they yes. say. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so it, it turns about taste and smell are, are so inextricably linked. Oh, they are. Taste is boring, Pat. There's just six of them, as you may know. Salt, sweet, sour, bitter, umami are the, five, the main ones, the five ones. There's, there's a couple of others maybe in there. Uh, and that's all you can taste. Smell is amazing. We reckon we can smell up to a million different things. Isn't that incredible? So sophisticated, our sense of smell. And when you actually sense something in your brain, it's a combination of one or two of those tastes, and then the sense of smell is very important. So if the sense of smell begins to get damaged, then you, you, you can't perceive things when you taste them, I suppose. So taste isn't really affected by the virus. It's just your sense of smell that, that gets affected. Now, before we leave those classic symptoms, uh, how do the symptoms differ from flu? Yes, well, that's very important. I remember early on, Pat, people said, oh, it's just another flu. It was a, a well-worn, I think Trump himself said that, didn't he? You know? And as time has gone by, and what's very important for us now is to have a good account of this disease in as much detail as we have. And doctors are doing a fantastic job Pat, in Ireland, all over the world, monitoring their patients and spotting these different symptoms and how they how they progress, I guess. And flu, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a much more severe disease than flu, there's no question, and much more contagious, as you know. And one big number that I just saw now is um, you get 10 times the hospitalization rate with this disease. And then people in hospital are spending much longer. So the average with flu is about three days. With this one, it's the average is 12 to 15 days. So you can see from that alone how much more severe it is. And then the other thing, as we all know, is older people are much more susceptible, you see. So it's the disease of largely of older people. So again, it's got very different feet. Even though it seems to affect the airways and with flu, you do get similar symptoms. This is quite a different disease from flu. Some people are reporting rashes and hives. Why would that be? Yeah, now we're going to we're going to come on to news, and it's very important for people to to be careful here. Just because you have a rash doesn't mean you have this disease. So rashes are very common, and some of these symptoms we we'll talk about are just features of other things. They aren't a feature of COVID, and people shouldn't worry if they see a rash on their body. But again, a rash is a common feature of infections. And obviously measles is the famous one, Pat, as you know, that's caused by a virus. You get a rash in your skin. Uh, many viruses cause rashes. It looks as if the inflammation just begins to spill over a bit into your skin. You begin to get these little blisters and bumps. That's inflammation of the skin. And again, with this disease, people, some people, not, not, not a huge number, will report a skin rash. Uh, they might also report a bit of eye inflammation, conjunctivitis. And again, these are common things in, in any any infection, really. But again, it's just because you have that doesn't mean you've got COVID-19. But again, doctors are noticing the rash. It might be slightly different, interestingly. Some of the features might be a little bit, again, distinguishing it from other diseases. And this can be very used then in diagnose, uh, useful in diagnosis. Now, what about uh, viral particles that are found in eye secretions? I mean, tears, I suppose. Um, are those infectious? Yeah, that was important, Pat, actually. So they began to see that early on that you do see an increase in some of these eye secretions. And, and as I say, an eye rash can be part of it. And very importantly, there's no evidence that those particles are infectious. So bits of virus might break off into the eye secretion, but there's no evidence at the moment that these are infectious. If they had been, if, this is why this is so important about all, all our discussion this morning, because if they had been, that would have informed care then. You would have been careful with the eye secretions you see to stop it spreading. But so far, it doesn't look as if those are infectious. Now tell me, what are COVID toes? Yes, now this is a striking business, Pat. In the last sort of month or so, and again, credit to our physicians in hospitals, monitoring patients very, very carefully and looking at them develop and so on. It became sort of apparent uh, as, as many as uh, so was maybe two months ago or maybe beyond that little clots were forming. Now, now clots are again a feature of most infections. Your blood begins to clot. Now, the reason for this, Pat, is, is, is a great one. And when I give these lectures to our students, it's often the very first response you see. 
when an infection is in your blood. You see tiny little blood clots. And the reason for these clots is simple. It traps the bug and stops it spreading. Do you know what I mean? So a clot will form a little fibrous mesh mm. and that will trap bacteria and then stop the bacteria spreading throughout your body. And also viruses cause this clotting. And it's a kind of a well-known phenomenon. And it's driven again by inflammation, which, which of course is my, my big interest. So the inflammatory process gets the body to allow blood to clot a bit and it's a useful thing. Uh, now they've seen it, inevitably they've seen it in COVID-19 as well. And these tiny clots are now being studied in great detail because if this uh, turns out to be very important, there's ways to maybe treat that, you see. And co the strange thing is these things called COVID toes. Small number of people begin to get what looks like, it's called pseudo frostbite. There's a great clinical term. It's not quite frostbite, uh, but it looks a bit like frostbite. your toes go a bit purple or a bit red. And, and the reason is little clots have formed in the toe and now the circulation is impaired. And as you know, with frostbite, it's, the, the circulation doesn't happen because of the frost. In this case, a little clot is forming and then we begin to see these uh, these features emerge. So now it's, it's now known as COVID toes. And again, mm. that joins the list of things that doctors look for with this disease. So it does seem to be a feature. Yeah. Now, people looking at their toes where they've been walking unusually because they're getting out, getting their exercise, they've never done it before. Yeah. They're likely to have bruised and damaged feet. So let's exactly. not panic Very about careful. that. No, precisely. Just well, everybody will have little blisters the on their Yeah, One of the things about uh, clotting, though, is uh, the increase in the number of strokes reported related to COVID-19. I heard reports of someone arriving in, a stroke patient in one of our major uh, A&E departments and being treated for stroke, but they had COVID-19. Yeah, which exactly. is obviously very difficult for the people in the stroke area who maybe are not gowned up to deal with COVID-19 but are dealing with a COVID-19 patient uh, and the stroke is related to that. Yeah, the, the very important thing here, as we say, is, um, you know, haematologists are now joining the fight. And, and it's, a, it's a sort of a story that reflects how, how much we're learning. So haematologists are the specialists that look at blood. James O'Donnell, I want to give him a shout. He's an RCSI. He had a big paper on this recently. So they're looking at this very closely. And of course, if they're seeing little clots, the haematologist might come in now and help treat the patient. And you might use uh, anticoagulants and heparin, for instance, is now being used. So, so it's, a very, it's a very important finding in a way because clots can become dangerous. And as you've said, one reason for strokes is a clot goes to the brain. Now, again, these are very rare. Uh, it's a small number of patients have the severe end. So it's not, it's not as if it's a common thing. But still, it's common enough for it to be looked for now and then to be treated. And that's what's so important about it, I guess. What's happy hypoxia? Yes, now this is the next one. Now this again was reported relatively recently. Uh, they noticed again early on by looking at patients that blood oxygen levels began to fall. Now normally, you know, oxygen, you breathe in, oxygen is essential to go all over your body and help you burn glucose. It's a very important gas to keep the energy balance in your body, right? That's what oxygen is for. And they noticed that the blood oxygen was, was dropping in the blood. It's normally what's called 95% saturation of oxygen in your blood. It drops as low as 50 in some patients. It drops to, you know, quite low levels. And that was noticed pretty early on. But the strange thing was, Pat, these people weren't passing out. Now, normally, if you have a drop in oxygen, and it might be because of altitude, uh, you know, you climb a mountain, pilots get it sometimes, loss of consciousness, certainly its orientation is a feature. And yet they noticed in patients with, with a blood oxygen level of, say, 70%, they were normal. They were having conversations, they were scrolling on their phones, and that was unusual. And, and, and now they've come up with this term, happy hypoxia. It's a strange phrase, I guess. But people have this so-called hypoxia, lack of oxygen, and yet they seem to be behaving normally. Now, it's a very interesting thing, Pat, because, again, this might go back to the clots. 
So there could be little clots in your lungs and you can't absorb as much oxygen. And then for that reason, blood oxygen begins to fall. But your CO2 levels stay normal. The other gas is CO2, by the way. That will build up in your body if you've, if you've low oxygen, you see. And that's what makes you feel faint or lose consciousness. And that doesn't seem to be a feature. So again, this is a relatively new thing. And this is very important because they might be able to treat it, maybe able to spot it happening. And it could be an indicator. Some people report this early on in disease and it might predict severity. So if people have this hypoxia and they're feeling relatively normal, because uh, how do you spot it is the next big question, by the way. Uh, people are being measured immediately on, on, on admission to hospitals just to check for this. And if, if it really goes on a lot, then it, it predicts kind of a more severe course. So again, it'll help the doctor treat the patient, but it's become a kind of a new symptom. Um, the other manifestations like brain manifestations, diarrhea and other, and then this Kawasaki disease. That's right. Yeah, now Kawasaki is thankfully very rare at this one. Uh, and it's more common in, in children. Now, as you know, children are spared. This One of the blessings, as we all know, of COVID-19 is children are very uh, do very well if they get infected. They have hardly any symptoms and they get over it, as we know. Uh, a small number we're showing, again, it seems to be to do with the blood vessels. What Kawasaki disease is, it's, it's also got toxic shock syndrome. The blood vessels become very leaky and that can cause problems. Uh, and that's an important finding part for everybody, actually, not just children, because a cell, another bit of immunology for you, you're ready. I'm teaching you a lot these days. <laughs> There's a cell type called endo, endothelial cells. They're in blood vessels. They seem to be affected by the virus. And these are the cells we think that might make a thing called IL-6. And IL-6 is a good target now in COVID-19. But when this gets very severe, and it's extremely rare, only, only 20 cases really were reported in the UK. Uh, and again, it seems to be a feature of something happening in the blood. So suddenly the blood becomes a big focus now for, for doctors looking at patients. And again, there could be ways to limit this. And we, we learn a lot more now as we, as we study these endothelial cells in more detail. Now, uh, the other overnight breaking news, I suppose, is about the uh, widening of the criteria for testing. You don't have to be in a particular at-risk group or uh, a frontline worker to get tested. Um, what do you think that will mean? Because the more you test, the more cases you'll find. And therefore, even things like mortality figures will go down. Uh, because, yeah, you know, the more you know about it and the more the, the cases uh, will probably remain the same because people, the serious cases and the fatalities will remain as they would have remained. So yeah. you're going to get an apparent falling of mortality. You will, yeah. And there's some evidence that it will bump towards flu ultimately. It may be more severe in its symptomology and so on, but the overall mortality might be around the same as flu in the end is one view of this. Of course, it goes back to the mantra, Pat. They're calling it TTI now as a way to remember what we all should be doing, you know, test, trace, isolate. And that's essential, as you know. And as we move out of the lockdown, that the focus always had to be on testing anyway, as we've discussed a couple of times. Uh, the way out is through testing, tracing, isolating. And then you restrict the lockdown to people who've tested positive or people connected with them and the more vulnerable groups, of course. So any kind of expansion in testing is a fantastic thing we all feel just to get a, a view of where this virus is and what it's been doing. And we know there's a, a growing consensus among medical people and scientific people about the wearing of masks. Later on, we'll be talking to the NBRU. They want all passengers to wear masks. And it's striking when you see countries coming out of lockdown, uh, even in the United States, loads of people wearing masks. And yet here we seem to be just hesitating all the yeah. time for fear it'll lead to a shortage on the front line. 
It remains gobsmacking in my... I know I go into work at the moment, Pat, as you know, and I'm on the dart. Nobody was wearing a mask on the dart. Now, only a few people, of course, in the cars. Nobody. I was the only one wearing a mask. Uh, I went out to Tesco's, got myself a sandwich for lunch. Again, nobody in Tesco wearing a mask. And my, my blood was beginning to boil, Pat, because the evidence behind this has grown stronger and stronger and stronger. The Royal Society, a very famous institution uh, issued a big report two days ago summarizing all the evidence the best brains in the world said you have to wear a mask in these like in, in, in a supermarket or on, a, on public transport so i'm begging the government now <laughs> to change the guidelines now as you know pat you got to be careful you don't want to use up all the ones for healthcare workers you can make your own with cotton as we know and i want to, and then you want public information films how to wear them because there are guidelines here so yeah. and I'm, I'm very glad to hear this directive now coming out on, on public transport it's essential that we wear masks and the evidence is clear it helps decrease spread it's obvious in a way and you know my famous yeah. analogy it's like a fire burning in cities and you're breathing out embers that will keep the fire going you know so wear a mask no more embers i mean it's obvious in a way so i'm sure that i'm pretty sure the government will change the uh, the guidelines on this we hope so soon that was Professor Luke O'Neill on Wednesday's Pat Kenny Show. Coming up next, our reporter Barry White takes a closer look at the impact the lockdown is having on our pubs. Welcome back to Weekly Digest on News Talk. I'm Shane Beatty. On May 1st, Taoiseach Leo Varadkar outlined the five stages to reopening the country. That plan placed the opening of pubs in stage five towards the middle of August. The publicans responded though on Monday with an alternative plan that could see them reopening much, much earlier. News Talk reporter Barry White spoke to Ivan on Tuesday afternoon about their proposal. Some of these proposals firstly include uh, confining the number of people sitting at a table to six people, uh, no more than four people per every 10 square metres, and table service will be a requirement. Bars will become dispense bars only with no sitting, standing, ordering payment or drinking at the counter allowed. All customers must remain seated and staff will be fully trained in the new procedures, including hand washing every 30 minutes. There will also be no live music or DJs allowed to stop crowds gathering. So it would be a very, very different atmosphere in Irish pubs if these proposals got to go ahead. And Gardaí would also have the power to close any business who is flouting uh, the, the public health guidelines. Now, I spoke to some larger pub owners in Dublin yesterday evening. Now, they say they believe they can work with the guidelines, but can these new proposals work for smaller pubs? And that's what I've been trying to find out. Now, Paul Moynihan runs a pub in the village of Denard in Wicklow, and he outlined to me today how he believes these proposals can work. Yeah, it's a small rural, it's a small village, Denard in West Wicklow. Um, in the foothills of the mountains. Um, it's a family pub. We've been in the trade since, I think, 1940s. Um, it is a small village pub. Probably fits about uh, 35 people normally. I've kind of made a few changes before we closed here. We kind of knocked it down into probably what's going to be acceptable going forward. I think we can fit about 15 people in it now with no one in, at the bar. It's, 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 it's a big change not having people at the bar, but that's Going forward, that's what's been suggested for a, a short period of time anyway. And you have a back bar here as well. Could you fit more people? Yeah, Barry, come on, let me take a walk through and I'll show you. I've got kind of three areas in the, in the bar. I've got the bar, the small uh, lounge we've been in. Then I've got a public bar here, which is kind of more bar space, kind of sitting at the bar than anything else. I think this area, with what's going to come, come with the suggestions that are coming through, this bar is, bar is probably out of use at the moment, I think, because it's the, the bar space is what's most important about it. But if you move forward up the back bar, I've kind of, I've got a jukebox 
pool table area. Yeah, you have a bit more space out here, so you could probably get a few more tables in here. Yeah, I think we're going forward as well, I think the jukebox and pool table are going to be out for, for a period of time, so I'm going to have to, to reconfigure up here. So I'm probably going to have to uh, take a little bit of advice about what I can do up here. And it's going to take some finance as well, Barry. So we've got to look, look at that too and see what we can... And you have a bit of a beer garden outside as well. Yeah, where... Lucky enough, I've got a, a beautiful day like today, Barry. It's a, it's a help. Again, I'm going to have to spend money. Again, we're going to have, probably have to... It's, it's wide open as, as we speak, so I'm going to have to kind of, kind of cover it. I don't know, kind of knock it off slightly that people can't be sitting with each other, kind of put it into sections. But it's doable if the finance is there. This isn't ideal, as I say, my trade was, I was happy, healthy, the trade was healthy going forward at the time, but I say, people are kind of saying it'll probably half our trade for a while, but if it's, if it's temporary, at least we're open, we're moving forward. But so you're for these proposals to get open in June? Yeah, well, the, the, the proposals to open, whether it's in June or August, that's what the proposals are going, like, we're just hoping to get open, we've got to work towards something to try and get back to some sort of normality. All right, that's in Denard in County Wicklow. But small pubs, and we know them, and some of them have great character, but you wouldn't swing a cash in it. Like, this, these plans seem to be for the larger establishments. Yeah, yeah, they certainly are, Ivan. And look, I spoke to Charlie Chalk on the phone yesterday evening. He owns a number of big establishments like Searson's in Dublin. He says he believes he could work with these proposals, but it's smaller pubs, as you say. 10 square metres is a pretty big space when you're putting it into the context of a busy pub. So that a pub, a pub that might have a crowd of around 100 people on a normal Saturday night would now be looking at a maximum crowd of around 25 uh, people under these proposals. So this would result in three quarters of their normal profits gone. And on top of this, they'd still be paying the same bills, such as rent, electricity, internet, satellite television, paying staff. I'm sure there's other costs as well. So for most pubs, this just won't be economically viable. Now, I've been to the old Royal Oak in Kilmainham. Um, it's the pub closest to me where I live. It's one of the smallest pubs in Dublin, I believe. And owner D. Costello says these proposals just simply won't work for them. Yeah, the more I think about it, it just so work. It is a very confined, maybe three metres wide by 15 metres in the bar. It's built in 1839 and represents how small an inn was at the time or a public house. And then we have a small room, which is the snug, and the toilets, which were stables. The snug on a... Back in the old days, you would possibly fit 15 people with the new normal, if we reopen. I'm not sure. Possibly six, if the LVA proposals yeah, so the, are tier two. As you can see, it the is... The snug is... Would it be two by two metres? It would be... Just about. It would be your 10 square metres almost. So how many would you normally fit in here? 15, comfortably, you know, but... As I said, I can't say from going forward. So, so what do you make of these proposals by the Vintners to get pubs reopened earlier? Would they work for you? Definitely not. It's a, for larger businesses and larger pubs, uh, perhaps they will work. But for us, it's not viable. I actually do not think it is possible to reopen in August at this point if these proposals are enforced. Two metres is preposterous anyway, in my opinion, because the WHO guidelines are one metre. We could enforce and do that. But... 
at the end of the day, it's public health and safety, it's staff and it's customers, and it's the spirit of the pub. It's not just about selling alcohol. When you read the proposals last night when they came out, like, what was your reaction? Astounded. They're just not workable. There's just no reality. I've been looking into and researching the perspects, hand sanitizers, all of that, and waiting on guidelines as well. But until this, the pandemic ends, essentially, there's no point reopening. All right, Barry, uh, divided views there. I'm surprised you haven't included a Republican from uh, Donegal. Uh, did you talk to any other publicans? Yeah, I did. I spoke to a number of rural publicans. And I suppose before this pandemic, many rural pubs across the country were already struggling. Um, I've done reports, you know, since I started. When you talk about pubs just closing everywhere around the country. So like your normal rural pub would barely see a customer midweek and a Friday and Saturday nights would be the only nights they'd be relatively busy. So limiting crowds in those nights now would probably just shut down an already struggling business. While also a lot of rural pubs, many of their everyday customers would be elderly and many publicans are afraid to open again, even in August, as they are unsure if they can guarantee their customers' safety. Now, I've been speaking to two publicans, one in County Donegal and one in County Sligo, and they've been giving me their thoughts on these proposals to reopen uh, pubs in June. Hello, my name is Declan Jordan, and I'm a publican of a pub called Snug 39 in Letterkenny, County Donegal. Uh, I, like many other publicans around the country, work seven days a week to make ends meet, to make this business survive. These measures that the vintners have put out there I can assure you have not consulted any small pubs. The fact that they expect us to do table service, even if we have our capacity, which mine would work out at 40 people, trying to do that on my own, because I cannot afford to to take on another employee. It, it, It wouldn't be viable for me. That is where I'm situated. That is my situation, and I deal with it. How they expect me to monitor people going to the toilet one at a time, going for cigarettes... I feel like I'm their babysitter as well as as serving them drink. And these measures that the Vintners have put out are nothing short of laughable. My name is Blaine Gaffney. I'm a proprietor and co-director of Lily's Cocktail Bar in Sligo. The premises itself is quite a small uh, premises. It would probably be about 65 to 70 square metres. Um, so when you look at that and you look at the proposals that have been uh, mentioned today by the Vintners, um, it's just quite simply not going to work. We would be in a situation whereby we're expected to open up at full cost, um, but yet have our uh, income reduced uh, by over 80%. And, and that's simply just not going to be in a position. We would actually go out of business quicker by opening under these proposals than we would if we stayed closed and tried to wait this thing out. You know, we would uh, be allowed to have 150 people in Lily's Bar in Sligo. But under these proposals, we would have to fall back down to 26, uh, 27 people. Right. Very interesting, this, that there are actually quite a lot of publicans opposed to this, given their own uh, individual circumstances. Finally, Barry, what are the punters saying? Yeah, it's hard to know if there'll be a rush, I suppose, firstly, even when pubs reopen again here. No. A lot of my friends in the WhatsApp groups I'm in are saying, oh, they can't wait to get out for a pint and get a night out again. But then there are other people I've been speaking to who say they would be weary about going into a crowded pub and they'll probably stay out of pubs until all this blows over. So although these proposals would be very different to the normal Irish pub experience, I'm not sure it could be properly policed when people are drunk. We know what Irish people are like. They'll be hugging each other uh, once the drinks are in. So 
social distancing will probably go out the window. Now, these people in Dublin today told me what they think uh, of the proposals. I think the no music thing wouldn't bother me, but I think I think I find it difficult to social distance, and I say, I guess, especially when maybe people have a bit of alcohol on board and the, uh, their limitations maybe are reduced. I think it'll be very difficult to manage. Um, I think, yeah, I don't think I don't I can't see it happening safely myself. Yeah. Would it get you back into a pub personally? Uh, I'd probably be very choosy about which pub I go into and maybe the local pub I'd, I'd probably have a look in but if it was too busy I think I'd turn around and walk out at the moment but if it, if it, if it did work yeah maybe the local pub but I don't think I'd be going into I think to enforce social distancing safely in that environment would be virtually impossible like um, but I guess if it, if, it, if, it, if it works great if it doesn't um I think we can always change it, but I think it would be good for the economy to get pubs and stuff up and running again. I think the message of social distancing is definitely you know, well enforced, and I think people are aware of it. But as, as you say, when, when you go into a pub environment and people are drinking and having a good time, it's whether how can you maintain that in that environment, I don't know. So, wait and see. <laughs> oh, all right, uh, very interesting views there. Uh, Barry White with that report of publicans around the country with divided views. Larger publicans in favour of it, wanting to get uh, started six weeks early. My own view, thanks very much indeed, Barry. My own view is that, look, whether it's your workplace, whether it's going to mass or whether it's going to the pub, you know what? You're all going to have to be adults about this and getting on a plane, make up your own mind, take your own safety precautions. And if you're not happy, don't do it. But do you have a right to tell everyone then that they shouldn't do it either? I I honestly can't understand how the pubs can't have been allowed to operate as off-licences. If every restaurant can do food delivery, why can't pubs be allowed to sell drink uh, on the basis of not consuming it uh, on the property? Some of your views do keep them coming 53106. I think for the opening of the pub trade to be done safely, closing time will have to be revised 10pm to avoid poor behaviour, says James in Cork. The sad bit for the publicans is that when alcohol is on board, the rules go out the window. So it looks like it could be left to the last phase, even could be delayed until Christmas. Oh, well. Right. Um, If four or six people are isolating together in a house or apartment, surely they can drink together in a pub. That, again, is common sense. Mark in Dublin 7 says, no way on earth of all these conditions are in place I'll be going back to the pub. That's grand, Mark. No live music, no DJ, no sport. Do this, don't do that. Extra euro on the pint. I'll be staying at home where the crack will be mighty. Who knows, I might even get taps installed. Get it done intravenously. That's the way I do it. Pubs, um, will bars and restaurants have to remove hand dryers to stop germs blowing around the toilet? Well, there's no doubt that the, the toilets need to be improved. Uh, what's the difference between a pub and a full licence? restaurant where you could have a burger washed down with four pints and lots of texts in relation uh, to the lockdown. Uh, the so-called plan is just a list of aspirations which we all welcome. The real question says Niall and Wicklow is how we get there. Is it the elimination of the virus or something else through testing? Where is that plan? It's non-existent. People are asking the wrong question.
Barry White speaking to Ivan Yates on Tuesday. Next week, much of the focus will be on May 18th when the gradual reopening of the country is due to get underway with outdoor workers and staff in garden centres and hardware stores due to return to their jobs. But as we move closer and closer to May 18th, will the modelling, ICU and hospital admissions and our testing levels show enough progress has been made to start lifting restrictions? As always, we'll continue to bring you updates as they happen on News Talk, but be sure to subscribe to this podcast on the Go Loud app or wherever you get your podcast from. And you can submit your questions or comments to COVID questions at newstalk.com. For me, Shane Beatty, until next week, take care.